The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled From Early Recognition to Age and Stage-Appropriate Care, Navigating a New Era in Rett Syndrome Management. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash NQQ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Alan Percy from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Thank you for joining me in this activity on navigating a new era in Rett syndrome care. We're going to talk about early recognition of age and stage appropriate care and navigating a new era in Rett syndrome management. As you can see, I'm a professor emeritus in the Department of Pediatrics at UAB. I'm a child neurologist, and I am the Sarah Catherine Beta Endowed Professor of Rett Syndrome. Our goals today are to expedite Rett Syndrome diagnosis through recognition of relevant signs and symptoms, understand the pathophysiologic rationale for and evidence about new and emerging Rett treatments, and develop individually appropriate management plans with regard to patients' ages and stages according to current consensus recommendations. In the first case, we're going to discuss diagnostic challenges in Rett syndrome. Rett syndrome is a severe neurodevelopmental disability. Predominantly affects girls and women with an estimated incidence of 1 in 10,000 to 15,000 female births. It is the second most common cause of severe intellectual disability in females, and there are multiple comorbidities associated with this disorder. Rett syndrome may also occur in boys, but it is much less common, and it is varied in its presentation. Most individuals with Rett syndrome have mutations that are loss-of-function mutations in the MECP2 gene at XQ28. That is methyl-CPG binding protein gene. Mutations are generally spontaneous, although they can be inherited. The mutations generally occur in the rapidly dividing germinal cells, which are sperm. There are hundreds of disease-causing mutations in Rett syndrome, but eight common recurrent mutations account for nearly 65% of those with Rett. Let's begin with a discussion of a case. Emma is a 22-month-old female. Her mother's pregnancy and delivery were uneventful. She'd been reaching developmental milestones at typical ages or perhaps a bit early. But over the past few months, the parents were concerned about her growth and developmental pace because it had appeared to slow down. She even seemed to be losing some skills in language and motor behaviors. She had essentially stopped talking, although an audiology evaluation ruled out a hearing impairment. Her gait had become quite clumsy and non-purposeful, and she had gone from using a pincer grasp to a palmer grasp. And finally, she had developed stereotypic hand movements of rubbing or wringing her hands. So this is a typical story for Rett syndrome. The pregnancy and delivery are usually uncomplicated, and the early signs of development are generally normal for the first six months or so. There may be some issues in the first six months, such as the baby may be too good. He only cries and eats and goes back to sleep without much fuss. And in addition, there may be a deceleration in the rate of head growth, which can be seen as early as one and a half to three months of age. 
Subsequently, there is a slowing of developmental progress and a regression occurring typically between 18 and 30 months of age, although it may be seen before or after this time. And the clinical manifestations that represents the basic diagnostic criteria for typical Rett syndrome are noted. That is, the loss of acquired spoken language, and the loss is either partial or complete, the partial or complete loss of purposeful hand use, an impairment in walking or failure to be able to walk at all, and then the development of the repetitive hand stereotypies, which may be hand wringing, hand rubbing, hand grasping of the clothes, or finger rubbing with the hands apart. Uh, Rett syndrome has been defined for more than 40 years now as having a four-stage process. The first stage is that of beginning a developmental delay, which usually appears between 6 and 18 months of age, followed by the regression stage, where there is a loss of these skills that we've already mentioned, and that may occur for 12 months or a little bit more, beginning around 18 months of age. Then there is a much longer period, which is a plateau period, where there's a stabilization of cognitive abilities, but the onset of the multiple comorbidities, particularly seizures, scoliosis, and a variety of other issues. That period may last 10 or more years. And then there's a late motor deterioration phase, which involves a reduction in mobility and a change in muscle tone. Early on, muscle tone in individuals with Rett syndrome is reduced. It then goes through a normal period, which everybody is really pleased to see, but then during the late motor deterioration, there's actually an increase in tone or increase in rigidity, and there is appearance of features that are much like Parkinsonism. The scoliosis is prominent as well as joint contractures, but the scoliosis may actually be seen already along with many other comorbidities during the plateau stage. Let's look at potential variation for Emma. Let's suppose that her speech and gait have not changed, but her regression in fine motor skills and her stereotypic movements are present. The parents have noted that there are periods of prolonged screaming for no apparent reason and inability to calm her. There's a prominent teeth grinding or bruxism and periods of breath holding. Sleep is abnormal, and her growth rate has slowed remarkably. And finally, her hands and feet are disproportionately small and seem cold to the touch much of the time. And this describes really the atypical form of Rett syndrome, which represents about 15% of all individuals with Rett syndrome. In this case, individuals need to meet two of the four main criteria, that is, the partial or complete loss of speech and hand use, the inability to walk or the difficulty of walking, and the hand stereotypies. They must meet two of these criteria, but in addition must meet five of these 11 supportive criteria. And you can read them here, and you can see that Emma met most of these. It is interesting that the supportive criteria also are quite common in typical Rett syndrome, but are not necessary for that diagnosis. Let's think of a different variation. So Emma continues to lag behind in multiple developmental areas. 
that there's been no clear regression. Parrots note that she's much slower or behind that of the development of her older sisters, and she's also described as a poor eater. This brings in the question of the differential diagnosis and that of nonspecific developmental delay. The differential in Retzinger may include autism, and indeed girls with autism during the regression phase may appear distant, removed from their parents, and not particularly interested in being held. And that period of autism is often a common diagnosis until they go into the plateau phase and have more of a stabilization of their cognitive and social abilities. In addition, Angelman syndrome may mimic Rett syndrome and the reverse, at least through the first 20 months of life, when seizures become much more prominent in Angelman syndrome and are very uncommon up to that point in Rett syndrome. Cerebral palsy has been considered in the past, and certain inherited neurodegenerative disorders, such as the neuronal ceroid lipofusinosis. And finally, that of nonspecific developmental delay needs to be considered. There's marked clinical overlap with these disorders, including scoliosis, gastroesophageal reflux, fractures, and abnormal behaviors, including both self-abuse and abuse of others, particularly the parents. And finally, the decrease in head growth in Rett syndrome is quite common, but not all individuals are microcephalic. That is, they may have a decrease in head growth, but their head circumferences remain within the normal limits. So a normal head circumference or minimal change in a head circumference can certainly delay the diagnosis. We conducted a large, multi-center, longitudinal natural history study of Retzidrum involving more than 1,000 individuals with either typical or atypical Rett syndrome. And the median age diagnosis was 2.7 years for typical Rett syndrome and slightly older for atypical. The early signs and symptoms can be subtle and may promote difficulties for clinicians. So it is important to have increased awareness of these clinical features and to use genetic testing as it does result in earlier identification and diagnosis. We also found that the diagnosis of Rett syndrome was made most commonly by a neurologist, a child neurologist, a developmental pediatrician, or a geneticist, and infrequently by a pediatrician or other primary health care provider. So physicians need to have a high index of suspicion for early and subtle delays in development and regression in girls, particularly between the ages of six months and three years. Why does it matter? Well, first of all, the earlier the diagnosis, the earlier the opportunity to advise families about the prognosis and potential comorbidities, and therapies can be initiated. A variety of them are depicted here. And early and aggressive treatment of comorbidities, particularly those with GI overtones, are important to prevent malnutrition and to retard a growth failure. And these include both the gastroesophageal reflux and constipation, which are present in 80 to 90 percent of individuals with Rett syndrome. We now have a targeted treatment available for Rett syndrome, and earlier diagnosis may provide the greatest benefit for the utilization of this agent and other agents that are online or coming online. So in summary then, in this case, it's important to evaluate the history very carefully, 
to conduct a physical examination, looking particularly at growth, head growth, and hand stereotypies, and to apply appropriate diagnostic methodologies, particularly genetic, either whole genome sequencing or targeted sequencing for the possibility of Rett syndrome or other developmental disorders. 95% or more of girls with Rett syndrome will have a mutation in MECP2, and those with atypical, it may be as many as 75%. Let's move on now to management of challenges in Rett syndrome. We're going to begin again with a case. This is Michaela. She's a four-year-old girl who was diagnosed with Rett syndrome at three years of age. She's quite hypotonic. She often cries at night and has frequent breath-holding spells during the day, which may dominate much of her daytime activities. Michaela has had tonic-clonic seizures now two to three times per week, despite being well-managed on oxcarbazepine. So the issue is, what do we do with Michaela's proposed seizures? One, we could increase the dose of the oxcarbazepine to within higher tolerable limits. We could add a second medication, or we could look more broadly at what is going on. And that involves, and we've done this many, many times, a video EEG analysis, which is an in-hospital assessment of girls. And it tells whether or not an event that is seen by the parents is correlated with a change in the EEG, or similarly, if there are changes in the EEG that are associated with any clinical changes in the child. And we've noticed in many cases that these breath-holding events can trigger a seizure-like activity, but are not, in fact, epileptogenic. So simply conducting this trial or test will potentially eliminate the excess use of medication. In 2020, consensus guidelines were developed for Rett syndrome across the lifespan. And the lifespan in Rett syndrome can be quite long as the median survival is over age 50. Now, that's less than in the normal female population, but is still substantially longer than was seen initially in the first group recognized by Andreas Rett nearly 60 years ago. This was the first formal management guidance, and it predated any Rett-specific treatment that came available. And what it does, it looks at the symptoms, the overall care of patients with Rett syndrome, and this quote directly from the paper, the overall multi-system issues of Rett require primary care providers and other health professionals to manage complex medical comorbidities within the context of the whole individual and family. The features of Rett syndrome, which may emerge at each stage, are dealt with in a pattern. So early childhood, late childhood, post-puberty, adulthood is clearly demarcated and with guidelines of what to assess and what to look for. And in addition, the overall surveillance and planning needs are recommended. The multi-system involvement that each patient may have require close observation and recognizing that they may vary from mild to severe and differ quite remarkably but from woman to woman. These manifestations or comorbidities include seizures. We already talked about gastrointestinal problems such as constipation or GE reflux, problems with eating, muscle tone, scoliosis, sleep problems, and so on. 
Now, in addition to her crying when awaking during the night, Mikhail also has daytime crying spells. Her parents try to figure out what's going on and can't seem to soothe her, and they use a trial and error system to try to manage it. So it's important to discuss this with the caregiver and recognize that there could be things going on, such as constipation or GE reflux, which are silent, but yet are bothersome. And it is important to focus on these and be certain that those have been eliminated. Also, sometimes girls have difficulties swallowing and chewing and may have problems getting the food through the esophagus without impacting the trachea. So it is important to consider these potential problems. As part of the natural history study, we asked the parents to define the top five concerns. There was a list of specified concerns and an option to enter free text. And the top five concerns were without much variation, lack of effective communication, inability to figure out what your daughter wants or for the daughter to explain what they want, the presence of seizures, lack of hand use, inability to walk or problems with balance. So anytime the child walks, they're on high alert to be certain that she doesn't fall. And then constipation. So we've been looking for specific treatments for Rett syndrome for more than a decade. Most individuals with Rett do have mutations in MECP2, and the MECP2 gene codes a protein, which is M small eECP2, that binds to DNA and recognizes marks that help tell the protein to either downgrade or upgrade the expression of other genes. The greatest expression appears to be in neurons, where it's critical for overall function as well as for the connections between neurons. And in animal models, it's been shown that restoring normal MECP2 function reverses many of the impacts of the disease in these animals. So it was clearly evidence already in 2007 that there was a potential for a meaningful therapy in this disorder. However, one must be careful because in a female, roughly half of the cells have normal MECP2 activity. So if you increase MECP2 in the body, you have to be certain that you don't over-increase the amount of that MECP2 in normal cells, because if you do that, you can produce a disorder which is on the other side and is virtually as bad as wrestling room, and that is duplication of the MECP2 gene, not necessarily a mutation, just a duplication, which produces a significant problem. So trofinitide, the first FDA-approved treatment of Rett syndrome, is a synthetic analog of glycine proline glutamate. It's the N-terminal tripeptide of the insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1. It's thought to normalize functions and did improve abnormalities in animal models. The exact mechanism of action is unclear, but it does appear that it could reduce neuroinflammation, normalize protein synthesis in the neurons and their synapses, and improve dendritic morphology. This drug was approved in March of this year for adults and children greater than two years of age. It's a dosage which is weight-based and administered orally or by gastrostomy tube twice daily. The pivotal trial for Rett syndrome with trofinitide was called the LAVENDER trial. 
Phase three trial lasting 12 weeks involving 187 individuals from 5 to 20 years of age who were randomized equally to trifinitide or placebo. The co-primary endpoints were the RSBQ and the CGII. The first is a caregiver completed inventory of 45 items affecting specific symptoms of girls or women with residrome. And the CGII is a clinician-completed inventory. It's a seven-point Likert scale where four is baseline, three, two, and one are better, and five, six, and seven are worse. The lavender trial was followed by open-label extensions of lilac or lilac-2, plus a daffodil trial, which involved girls from two to five years of age. These have been completed. In this slide, you can see the results of the RSBQ over the 12-week course, and at the end of 12 weeks, there was a clear distinction between placebo and trofinitide with a p-value of 0.0175 in terms of significance. And breaking down the individual scores or subscores in the RSBQ, it is noteworthy that all of the scores were in favor of trofinitide without exception. In terms of the CGII, similar outcomes were noted with a significance of 0.003, which was markedly better than the placebo group. Let's come back to Michaela. After discussing the trofinitide with Michaela's physician, her parents are interested in beginning treatment. So what information should they expect or what should be delivered to them, particularly concerning the use and the potential adverse effects? They're also curious about other treatment options that are coming down the pike. The most common treatment emerging adverse effects were diarrhea and vomiting. A diarrhea was seen in 80% of individuals and about four times more than in the placebo, a highly significant number. And vomiting was in 27% and again about three times that in the placebo with a very significant number. In general, the diarrhea was mild to moderate, but it did lead to withdrawal of, from the trial in 12 individuals or 12.9% of those on treatment. Interestingly, once the trofentide was removed, the diarrhea resolved pretty quickly. And during the course of the trial, we developed a very good diarrhea plan, which was implemented and really helped families with their diarrhea. 75% of patients completed the study. We did have concern that there might have been functional unblinding due to the imbalance in the diarrhea, but it was judged overall not to have created any bias in determining the efficacy data. During the lavender trial, we had a diarrhea management plan, which included the discontinuation or adjustment of laxatives commonly used for constipation in Rett syndrome. In addition, we initiated fiber supplementation and or anti-diarrheal medications to address the diarrhea specifically. And occasionally, we reduced the dose of the trofinitide or actually interrupted it for a period of time to allow things to slow down. Now, following the approval of the drug, we develop a plan with the family. So for a week prior to initiation of the agent, we asked the parents to keep a very good diary of the bowel habits of the girl and two to three days before initiating to begin to cut back on the constipation medications, whatever they might be. 
and to be prepared to stop them altogether. In addition, we offer the options for either fiber supplementation or anti-diarrheal medications, or actually both. And in general, we do not start at the full recommended dose, but to start at roughly 50% of that dose and titrate the dose up over a course of two to four weeks, judging how the individual tolerates the agent. And that has worked very well. Now, there are certain other potential treatments that are in the pipeline. In addition to trofinitide, there were two barcamacine, or Anavex 2-73 trials conducted in the U.S. and in Europe. Barcamacine is a sigma-1 receptor agonist and a muscarinic receptor modulator. And it was shown in animals that this agent had improvement effects in multiple areas of the animals with Rett syndrome disorder, much like seen with trofinitide. The first trial was a phase 3 trial in women 18 to 45 years of age, and the results which appeared in February 2000 2022 showed that the treatment arm showed a 72% improvement over the placebo arm, which was 38.5, and was quite significant at the p-value of 0.037. And this was on the RSBQ caregiver completed inventory. Subsequently, phase 2-3 excellence trial in children 15 to 17 years of age was conducted included both dose escalation, tolerability, and efficacy. That study concluded in June of this year. No results are yet available, but we look forward to these. Other agents that have been tested are ketamine and dextromethorphan, which have been both through phase two trials. These are non-competitive NMDA receptor antagonists. We know nothing about the potential for a phase three trial in either agent. And very exciting is the potential for gene therapy. This has been uh, looked at ever since the animal studies in 2007, and it's been important to make certain that the overexpression of the gene is not resulting. The gene is attached to a viral vector, adeno-associated virus 9, which has a, an affinity for the nervous system. And as this gene has autoregulatory elements which lead or can control overexpression of the gene. Currently, two phase 1-2 trials are ongoing. The TASHA gene therapy, TSHA-102, involves an intrathecal through the spinal canal administration of the agent, and this is being studied in adults. And the neurogene trial, NGN-40, involves intracerebral ventricular administration, and that's being studied in children 4 to 10. And you're excited to understand the results of these trials. So the summary takeaway is to understand the RET treatment paradigm, which focuses on symptomatic management, but changed dramatically earlier this year with the approval of the first treatment aimed at the RET gene itself. Additional treatments are in the developmental pipeline, and we have a hope for those as well. The multimodal, multidisciplinary management is needed for this condition and it's important to follow these guidelines, both for primary care providers and specialists, with a focus on meeting the needs of not only the individual with Retsidrum, but also their parents or caregivers. And to do this 
throughout life as there are changes in their behaviors which need to be addressed at each point. And I want to thank you very much for your participation and hope you find this activity useful in your practice. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NQQ860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Acadia Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.